As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there, welcome to the show, the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and I'm joined from The Athletic by Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. If you want to catch up with everything that Phil's been writing about on The Athletic, bag yourself a subscription and check out the very latest offer right now at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pods. And if you like the show, leave us a review too. Straight into the football then. And we need to start with an apology because we completely neglected to talk about the Southampton game last week. I think because we moved things around because of a Friday kickoff with the Wolves game. It just slipped our mind, didn't it, that we had a Tuesday game at Ellen Road against Southampton. Should we make up for it by only talking about Southampton this time? Yeah, we don't really need to cover Wolves off, do we? I mean, it does feel like ancient history, particularly when there's been another game in the second half as exciting as it was at Ellen Road. Um, Very, very good indeed, wasn't it? A win and a loss, though, in the end. I must confess that even Craig from our office, who sorts out a lot of the match passes, um, messaged me on Monday afternoon to say... I've totally forgotten that it's Southampton tomorrow and I've not applied for you. Hopefully you, you don't get stopped at the, the gates. It did kind of creep up a little bit and I think it's it's partly symptomatic as well of, of the fact that the season's going so well um, and Leeds are so stable and kind of so secure in, in a mid-table position that it didn't feel from Leeds' perspective like there was a huge amount riding on it. And I think because of that, I'm not saying that the fixtures blend into one or, or an irrelevance at all, but there isn't that kind of, you know, there's, as there was last season, that kind of the, the, everything hanging on every single game and and you feeling the tension when you turn up to Ellen Road. I can't remember in all the time I've covered Leeds ever seeing or, or ever feeling the place so relaxed. I know there are no supporters in the ground, so the atmosphere is totally different and, and it's all a bit alien. But there's just no tension around the place. There's no stress. Bales is still cracking the whip and he'll, he'll do that right the way through to the end of the season. But even, and we're, we're going to speak about this in part two, but even, you know, on the subject of his future and, and his contract, it's, it's very much still to be decided. But I think if you look at it rationally, it doesn't feel as if it's a massive problem or a, a massive crisis. There isn't any sign of that at all. Um, so it, it did creep up. And I think in the end, the, you know, there was far more on the game for Southampton than than Leeds because they are they're in a bit of a hole at the minute and and kind of treading through treacle. But I felt between the two games, in the main, two very good performances. I thought they were competitive at Wolves and unlucky to lose there. I thought once they got into the second half against Southampton and and once Bielsa 
made the change of bringing off a, a very sort of quiet and subdued Jack Harrison and, and getting a really good second half out of Helder Costa and also just tweaking the tactics slightly to address the fact that the pitch was difficult and Southampton were causing problems with the high press. But once he did that, again, the, the disparity between the teams was was pretty vast. And it's just little by little, it just adds to the, the sense of a side who really have acclimatised well to, to the Premier League and who are competing with some teams who've been around at this level for quite a while now. It's taking a little bit of getting used to actually, isn't it? Because it's the first time in what, it's not just two, two and a half years that we've not had anything really riding on it and it's all quite relaxed. It goes back further than that, doesn't it? It goes back to Heckingbottom and everything that went before it. How how long is it since we didn't have uh, something really bugging us or immense pressure? And said, there were certainly many seasons that used to, at this point it was just drifting along, but it was a very unhappy drift, wasn't it? Whereas this is more, we're looking to the future almost, aren't we? And we're thinking about who we, who we can sign next year and who we want to keep as opposed to and improve upon as a host to who's going to get sold because all the good players have to leave. It is a bit oddly serene. I mean, I would probably go back to the 2010-11 the season to think of a year where, and I'm not talking about years where nothing was expected because that was more to do with the running of the club and to do with the structure of the squad and, and just that general apathetic view that was highly unlikely Leeds were going to challenge. I think 2010-11 was the, the last season I can remember where Leeds were going into it with very little pressure on them, certainly at, at the outset. But even that evaporated because you got to the point where they were second under Grayson um, at Christmas. The playoffs were right there for them until it, it all collapsed over the Easter weekend. And, and once you got to that point, you were back to national teeth and frustration about investment and the development of the squad and, and everything else. This time round, I don't think any if they, if they do fall sh- short of Europe, which I still think they will, I don't think anybody will care. You know, I don't think anybody will will think of it as a missed opportunity because I think if you see it like that, you, you were thinking about the wrong opportunity in the first place this season. I think they're really close to doing what they needed to do, which was just to to settle in, to find their feet, and to improve and, and move forward from the team that they were last season. And I think more than anything. They're setting themselves up brilliantly for the summer window when I think it, it should be easy to attract players and it should be easy to convince players that this is something you, you want to get involved in and, and also that it's not a project that's kind of running out of steam. You know, on, on the contrary, it feels to me like it's it's got the potential to get to get significantly better yet. I think that is a very good point. We're, we are building up ahead of steam, aren't we? There's momentum now starting to grow within the club and it feels like we've got rid of the kind of first half of the season jitters we found our place in the division because there was a lot to really like and enjoy in that second half against Southampton I thought so many good things when you consider goals from Bamford Dallas Rafinha all who are brilliant Urente got 90 under his belt I know Jack Harrison's a little bit out of form at the minute getting yanked at half time but to see Costa coming on and being much better as well it's just it's all uh, seems to be trending in the right direction at the minute yeah, and, and an assist for Roberts, he he should have had a goal, I think, with him and Helder Costa. You're talking about probably two of the players who are potentially going to be vulnerable in the summer when Leeds start to redraw the squad again. I, I certainly expect them to, to go into the market when the season ends, not necessarily to quite the same extent as last last summer, you know, not necessarily the same level of expenditure. But I think I think there will be a very decent outlay again. And and I, I was saying in my match piece midweek that this is probably the window coming up where for the first time they're going to start moving on from the, the sort of championship old guard. Not in a not to a huge degree. And I think if you look at the form at the moment of somebody like Dallas, you can understand why Bielsa wants new players, but at the same time wants to retain a lot of the old players because he doesn't want to 
sacrifice or, or kind of destroy the know-how that he's got in the dressing room, the know-how about his tactics and his systems and his methods um, all round. But this is the point of the season where for somebody like Roberts, who's got a year left um, after the season finishes, he needs to start playing well and he needs to start playing well consistently. And I thought it was quite noticeable, Bielsa's comments before the game, where he was saying Roberts needs to prove that he is a Premier League player and he is Premier League standard. And he needs to prove as well that he merits a place in the team because of his form, not because players are injured. And I did think that was quite telling. Bielsa doesn't, it doesn't often you know, speak as candidly as that or, or as openly as that. And, and I did think it was a bit of a challenge to Roberts to say, look, there's going to have to be a big decision about you at some point because of your, your deal. And I need to see you perform consistently in a way that convinces me that, that you should be part of, of what we do from this season onwards. And given the way that Bielsa manages the dressing room, so a low head count, you know, never too much fat on the bones. If there are arrivals, and we expect there will be in the summer, then you would assume that there will have to be departures as well. So certain players will be vulnerable. Certain players like Costa, for example, definitely need to be playing better than they have been, you know, over Christmas and, and post-Christmas. But again, so many good performances on Tuesday night and the best of them by a mile from Rafinha. Well, we'll talk about Rafinha a little bit. I mean, it feels like we do it every week for like a broken record talking about how good he is. Let's have a word um, first, maybe though, before we get on to him about Urente and the fact that he got 90 under his belt. How do you think he performed? I thought he had a very good game. I did. And I didn't think the... The first half was an easy one to to defend in at all. The pitch was difficult again. It was slippy surface, even though it, it had been dry in the, the build-up to the game and, and even though the, the temperature has increased quite noticeably, that it was not easy on the foot. And that's always, you know, it doesn't make it easy for forwards and, and attacking midfielders to shine, um, but it doesn't make it easy for defenders to avoid mistakes. And, and that's where you, you get exposed more than anything. You can you can have a quiet game as a forward without anybody really noticing you. But when it goes wrong at the back, it's there for everybody to see. And and we've watched Durante get injured after joining, get injured in the Chelsea game, pull his hamstring again at Newcastle. And, and Bielsa said after the Newcastle game, you know, I'm, I'm a, a little worried about his mental state. He wasn't suggesting that Durante's mental state was in any any way related to the injuries he was suffering. But he was worried that, you know, the kind of build-up of setback after setback was going to start getting to him and and that you'd have an £80 million player who just wasn't able to to get going. You know, bearing in mind that we're now almost into into March. But I thought it was a really competent performance on on Tuesday and I thought it it made him look like a good investment. You know, £80 million is a lot of money and it's a lot of money considering that I think in Bielsa's head he would think of... Cooper and Robin Koch as his first choice centre backs in a in a back four, but I thought Urente on that evidence and and on that game alone looked easily good enough to merit a place alongside Cooper. Him and Stroik actually playing themselves both really um, into contention. You could argue one guy who's basically undroppable now. Then yeah, Rafinha, great free kick, and he's he's just doing bits all the time, isn't he? I mean, it just makes me smile thinking about how he plays. Well, the thing we were talking about in the press box afterwards was the, the number of assists that he could have had on Tuesday night. And I don't think it would have been pushing it to say that he could and probably should have had about four, if not more. He was he was laying on some really, really good chances at close range. And to go back to, I think some of the earliest discussions that we had about him, he always seems to pick the, the right ball and always seems to make the, the right decisions. And Leeds, I thought, were savvy in the second half against Southampton. They they were a little bit more direct. They didn't take so so many risks outside their own box. I think it was apparent to them and to Bielsa that they, they weren't playing well in the first half, but it was also being compounded by 
the fact that the pitch wasn't great and they were putting themselves in positions where potentially they were going to get hit in transition and were going to be punished. And what they were able to do in the second half was to, to essentially beat Southampton's high press by looking for the white players, Costa and Rafinha. And it was a nightmare for Southampton. I, Hassan Huttle almost said towards, you know, after the game that towards the end, he thought they threw in the towel. And I certainly felt that. It was it was like total disarray with Southampton towards the end as, as Rafinha just kept getting through on the left-hand side. But even to go back to the game against Wolves, it was his delivery, his, um, you know, his set pieces that were really causing the problem that, that, that for Wolves. There was that great, chance for Cooper in the first half there was as good a chance for Cooper which he should have scored um, in the second half really close range header that that he would have expected to put away I'm sure and it's the consistency of it and I think what Rafinha represents is the way that clubs can and should try to elevate themselves when they come up you want to move on from a situation where your wingers are Costa and Harrison I say that in no disrespect to them at all but Rafinha's on a different level and it looks exceptionally talented. And I think the challenge for other players, and I was saying this in midweek, is that you have to start keeping up. And if Leeds are going to keep progressing and if they are going to keep pushing the quality of the squad and if they are going to start addressing you know, the strength of it right to its very fringes, like Bielsa says, having an 18 that is genuinely strong enough to compete properly and seriously in the Premier League, then you're either up to that standard or you're gone, I think. And that might be a bit of what we see when the summer comes round. I mean, I, I can't be bothered getting back into the discussion about how do they keep Rafinha because I just think that's going to keep rolling now indefinitely until for as long as he's playing like this because that really is the way that people talk about talented players these days. Once you start once you start shining, it's all a case of where are you going next and you're seeing it a bit with Mbappe and you're seeing it with Haaland at Borussia Dortmund as well. He just looks, he looks not only supremely talented, he just looks so consistent. It's as if you're going to get that out of him every single game. And I think that's the difference between a very, very good player and an, an elite professional. Just to go back to the Cooper chances, is it something they were working on now with set pieces or is he just very good at them? So we're naturally just creating chances. They do work at them, but I think he's just very good. I mean, I, I agreed with them um, personally. I think it was um, James Rollins on, on Twitter was saying that he liked the fact that Rafinha takes his corners from inside the inside the corner box as opposed to messing about with trying to put it right on the, the edge of the, the whitewash, which I've never understood. There, there must be a, a long read. I'll, I'll badger somebody at the Athletic to do this on why it is that players insist on having the ball two millimetres closer to the to the box than than if they just put it by the corner flag. I don't understand. He doesn't seem bothered with that. He just puts it down and, and whips it in. And it's the same with his free kicks. And when I went to interview Calvin Phillips at the end of last season, we, we sat and we went over some aspects of his game and, he was joking with me about his corners and saying, I usually hit the, the first man with them, which, you know, it's, it's kind of kind of standing joke around him, but it's also true from, from time to time. Again, with Rafinha, it feels like you've got a completely different weapon there because actually suddenly the set pieces are becoming extremely difficult to defend. And the deliveries that he sends in low and flat, you know, curling towards goal, incredibly difficult to deal with. I mean, if you put it in the right place, as he did twice for Cooper, you know, it's almost worth a goal in itself. And Cooper should have scored at least twice, I felt, down at Wolves. They they were on a plate, those chances. But I think, again, it's just given Leeds a slightly stronger hand and a stronger arm in an area of the game where, they, under Bielsa, they've never really been that strong. It's great to watch. I'm just really enjoying myself at the minute. I don't know about you. It's just, it's an experience that, for once, is just a delight to behold. Even when it goes bad, you know that we're never more than a game or two away from a victory. And uh, there's a nice 
sort of sense of togetherness at the club as well, isn't it? Everyone, uh, everyone's sort of pulling in the same direction as we saw, like with the Granny Val tribute. Feels like a very strong dressing room and a, just a very harmonious unit. Which I think is why Bielsa won't rush to break it up, assuming he stays in the summer. But that I think that's always been one of the one of the concerns for them is is that if you did replace everybody on mass or or if you made you know sweeping changes, then you would lose a lot of that. He would he was saying afterwards, you know the the human aspect of the dressing room is what I like most about it. You know, is what I value most about it, irrespective of the talent and and the ability. You know, that was in relation to a question about Rafinha and, and a question about how well Rafinha had been able to fit in. It's It would be easy to look at Rafinha and look at how good he is and, and to wonder what sort of ego he's carrying, given the, the kind of extreme talent that he does seem to have. But they say at Thorpe Arts that he's nice, laid-back, quiet guy who is really, really easy to manage. Same with Rodrigo. You know, despite being Spain's number nine, you know, it's, it's not... Not difficult personality, or certainly hasn't been in, in the time that he's been at Leeds so far. So it, it it is important. I think it now just becomes a question of striking the right balance between being fair to the players who've got them this far and and not cutting them loose any earlier than they deserve, but also while accepting that you you can't stand still, you can't risk standing still. I think there's a big lesson for Leeds in what happened at Sheffield United over the summer and, and what's happened there this this season. The fact that they didn't really consolidate that first year they had in the Premier League. They didn't seem to get the recruitment right after it. They didn't seem to target players who were necessarily considerably better than what they already had. And, and that, I think, is, is where Leeds need to make sure that they're different this time round. 13 points to Fulham, who are in 18th. Tell Michael it's going to be all right, Phil. Yeah, of course it is. I felt that it was anyway before... Tuesday night, but no doubt that Fulham are, are creeping up slightly. And and actually, I mean, I've, I've watched a bit of them recently and I think they're starting to look like a half-decent team um, under Parker. I think he, he has actually got some decent players down there. And I, I do think that they've got the, the potential now to threaten Newcastle or, or Brighton and, and even Burnley, who aren't so far ahead. I think the clubs who are below 30 points at, at the moment are the ones who need to get a move on because they're the ones that are going to be in danger of, of getting reeled in. I think Southampton on 30 couldn't consider themselves to be totally safe, but I'd be surprised if, if if their form continues like this indefinitely. I think at some point they'll they'll buck the trend and, and they'll move up the table again. But for Leeds, I mean, 13 points, it's, it's, it reminds me actually of when all the seasons when Leeds were in the Championship and, and not really competing for the playoffs. And you'd go through February and March and you'd think, you know, the gap to the playoffs is eight points, it's nine points. You know, you, you could turn that around but then you would look and you would see that there were eight or nine teams between them and sixth place as well. And not all of those teams are going to lose every weekend. Some of them are going to have very good runs of form. It's, it's almost too much. And if you go up from Fulham, you've got Newcastle, Brighton, Burnley, Southampton, Crystal Palace, Wolves, Arsenal, and then Leeds. It's it's a hell of a lot of ground to clear both ways if, if Leeds are going to get sucked in now. I am more or less... More or less happy, it must be said. I mean, if I was, I know it was looking through the fixtures, and I noticed Fulham play Newcastle on the final day. And if I was a Newcastle fan, I'd be having nightmares about that already. So it's it's nice that it's be someone else's nightmare anyway. <laughs> well, you see, that this is why there's going to be the the big argument over whether or not the Premier League should be allowing crowds and you know back in before the end of the season because there are potentially some some really big fixtures further down the line. But the funny thing is that generally people talk about forty points being the benchmark for survival, and actually, if you go back over the years. It's been about 10 years since you did genuinely need that to stay up. It tends to be lower um, and sometimes quite considerably lower. But if you were sitting on on 40 points now, 
you would be sixth. You'd be with Liverpool are, and, and you would feel in no way under any threat at all from, from Fulham. So given that Leeds are only five points back and sitting on 35, I, I, I definitely feel that they're safe. And what about the prospect then of having fans back in the stadium before the end of the season? It's it's hanging in the balance this one because the Premier League um, are saying they may prevent fans coming back, or so it's reported anyway, for the sake of sporting integrity. But that doesn't quite wash, does it? Because Chelsea had fans in when we played there earlier this season, albeit a very small number. There is a difference though. And, and the difference is that back in December, November time, when they were talking about this, your Premier League club saw it as a as a positive direction of travel. I remember somebody at Leeds saying that to me. You know, Leeds weren't able to have fans back in because they were tier three, but the club was saying, even though we can't, and even though we go to Chelsea and they have 2,000 in, in the ground, it's still a case of moving in the, the right direction. And, and everybody wants attendances back in the stadiums. Every, everybody needs match day income again. So whether or not it's advantageous for you at that point, you almost have to support it. You know, you almost have to keep the progress going in the direction you want to. The difference this time round is that the games are falling right at the very end of the season, the, the point at which fans potentially will be allowed back in. And because of that, you might have a scenario where, as Michael was talking about, Newcastle against Fulham. You do have an unfair advantage on the day because you have a, a stadium that is either a quarter full or has 10,000 fans in, which is a significant number. Do you know, I mean, to take Ellen Road, 10,000 is nowhere near capacity. You know, capacity is 35, 36. But you would still hear a crowd of 10,000. It would still make a big difference. And I think particularly because it would be first time back in, I think a crowd of 10,000 would probably feel more like double that and because of the, the kind of novelty of, of actually being there. At, the, the problem with this when it was announced by the government was that it seemed to catch the Premier League off guard. They they, they didn't seem as if they'd been briefed about it. I know that Leeds and, and other clubs hadn't been briefed about it. Um, and the way the announcement was made was, was almost as if to say, look, this is when stadiums will, will be allowed to welcome fans back in. Therefore, it's going to happen. It's going to happen on the final weekend. But of course, you do have the sporting advantage issue, um, which they're going to have to consider. And there's no huge benefit to the clubs financially of this. You know, it's not as if you're knocking out 10 games from season tickets next season. You're not. You're, you're literally losing one or, or two at the most. What is being discussed at the moment is the possibility of delaying the second last game. So game 37 from the weekend of the 15th to the following Tuesday or Wednesday, 18th, 19th, something like that, in order to, to clear the cutoff date that the government have set and to allow crowds back in, fans back in for, for the second last game of the season. But I, I suspect there's an awful lot to be discussed with this. It, it's going to be difficult because the Premier League are not going to be certain for a while yet which games are going to have something riding on them and, and which aren't. And they can't really have a situation either where games that are dead rubbers effectively are allowed crowds, games that aren't are not. It, it would just be inconsistent and it would all be... It would all be a bit strange. So expect this to run for a, a little while yet. And I, I honestly don't know which way the coin will land, but it wouldn't surprise me that much if they if they turn down the opportunity to do this. Having fans in for a single game it does kind of feel like a waste of time, I have to say. I know this is, I probably don't speak for everyone on this, but my image of going back to Ellen Road is when it's full and there's something to play for and it's the start of a season and everyone's, I don't know, everyone's on a level footing with it. Whereas it's going to be, it's going to be 10,000 people in the stadium, but there's probably going to be other people who go down just to have their match day atmosphere and they'll be drinking in the Peacock and drinking in town. And I don't know, it feels like it's it's potentially not got a huge amount of benefits to it for just a single game. Again, it, it's, it's a little bit about direction of travel. It's 
it would almost be a test case of how do the stadiums cope with with these crowds and and the the various sort of protocols that they would have to have outside the stadiums. Um, is there any knock on effect of virus spreading or, or infection rates rising, anything like that that you can definitely attribute to it? And I think it it would it the game generally in the Premier League would feel I think that it was teeing them up for next season. And I think from the point of view of supporters as well, it would it would probably be a it would probably be nice mentally to feel as if you know clubs had, had cleared that hurdle, but it's it's going to be contentious because as I say, a lot will depend on how the fixtures fall. And to give you an example, the second last weekend of the season, Leeds are away at Southampton, and you know if, if those if both clubs go in the direction that they're expecting to, then the chances are that there won't be an awful lot riding on that game, assuming Southampton don't continue going backwards rapidly. So so there's no there's no real politics around that particularly. But then West Brom come to Leeds the following weekend. Will they be relegated already? Possibly. Fulham Newcastle, I think, is has the potential to be far more problematic in that sense. So it all feels a little bit messy. And I think true to form with a lot of what's gone on through COVID, it all kind of appeared out the blue and, and was a bit sudden and, and nobody was really prepared for it. So there'll need to be Premier League meetings about this. There'll need to be some, some serious decisions taken. And um, as I say, I'm, I'm not entirely sure which way they'll go with it. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Well, Phil has declared that the club is as good as safe from relegation, so now we can start to plan next season properly. And top of that list, keeping Bielsa. I know we spoke about him a couple of weeks ago, but there have been some developments in, in the last couple of weeks that I mean we should probably revisit this. And I mean, I could talk about Bielsa until the cows come home because he fills me with joy, but... We are getting clearer indications now then that another year is in the offing, Phil. You, you're almost ready to hang your hat on it. I feel almost ready to hang my hat on it. He, he seems very settled. He seems very satisfied with everything that's going on. To, to speak to people who, who kind of know a little about what's in his head, I think the, the inclination is definitely there to, to do year four. And when we spoke about this last, I was saying that it, it would confuse me, I think, if, if we chose this as his juncture to go, because okay, they, they've been promoted, and and that was that was the sole aim for him when Leeds recruited him. I mean, I, I think in the mind's eye, they, they would have liked the idea that he came in, got them promoted, and and then took them on a, a few more steps in the Premier League. But I think promotion was enough. You know, after so long in the EFL, that was the the only thing that anybody was thinking about too seriously. But they have made so much progress, and and they are growing as a team quite noticeably and and quite significantly. And we're about to hit another transfer window where, you know, you would expect that there will be funding available for, for new players where I think he, he will be able quite significantly without being sweeping about it to make changes to, to key positions in 
in the squad and 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 to perhaps deepen the the choice of options as well. And it just feels as if it's a perfect opportunity to to move forward again. And and I, you know, I, I think I said last time that at some point he's gonna he's gonna be in his last job in football, isn't he? And I think at the moment his stock's incredibly high. So I wouldn't for the life of me imagine that he wouldn't be able to find employment elsewhere. But it's a risk giving up a job like this. And and I, I get the sense that it, when we spoke to him on Monday before the Southampton game, he, he got talking about this and. It seemed apparent to me that he'd seen the quotes from Andrea Radrazani over the weekend, which were saying really what Radrazani is prone to saying, which is that we like Bielsa, we'd like to keep him, he's been he's been good for us, but he isn't tied up to a contract for next season yet, and we have to think of other options and and so on. We have to have a, a short list in place. And Bielsa referenced those comments, so he was clearly aware of them and it, and it clearly noted them. And I thought was was quite cute and quite clever, actually, in, in saying, you know, the club should wait until the end of the season just to make sure that nothing happens between now and then that makes them decide that they, they don't want me as head coach. You know, the club are bigger than me. It's, it's more about the club than it is about me as as manager, as, as head coach. I thought he very much gave the impression in it that if his, his arm was forced now, he would say yes. I mean, I, I, there was nothing. And he said himself, you know, that it, that it is... This is about as good as it gets from his point of view. You know, there is there is nothing better than than the job at Leeds. And he made the point that he wouldn't go looking for other offers. He wouldn't speak or deal with anybody else that that tried to approach him. And to me, it doesn't feel a, a whole lot different to last season, aside from the fact that Leeds are now in the Premier League. The, the anticipation was always that, or the expectation was that the contract talks the next round would come at the end of the season because they they always do. It's kind of odd how they've found so much stability under a, a coach who, you know, kind of lives summer to summer and, and doesn't want a three-year deal, doesn't particularly want two-year deal, four-year deal, you know, doesn't seem to feel that that stability is necessary for him. But it feels to me that it's all in a good place. And, and it feels to me that if everybody does the right thing and if everybody's patient and if everybody's willing to just deal with this as it has to be dealt with, then it, it should get done. Well, let's hear from that presser on Monday ahead of the Southampton game. And it felt like Bielsa was making the position as clear as he possibly can do. The first thing I, I want to um, highlight because uh, what it seems like is like the president is offering me an extension and I am delaying it. It could be interpreted as as the club having more desire for me to stay than 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 I do, and that's not the case. Uh, in no way do I want to position myself above the club, and I, and I reiterate, I'm not going to m- manage any other options. Um, until my job here with Leeds is done. There's no speculation they me back from my part. Interesting that he's not positioning himself above the club because in many ways we did need a figure that was bigger than the club to come in at the time that he did. And I think it's kind of proved right that we needed that guy and he was the man. Um, what would it mean to you if he stayed, Michael? I think it just means a trust in the manager and the direction of the club, which I think is not something you can. we've generally had. I, as long as he is there, having got through this first season of almost got through it without relegation. It feels very improbable that with another season to build on this squad, we will go down with Bielsa in charge. If Bielsa was to leave in summer, I feel it would throw everything up in the air again and it'd be almost like all bets are off on what, what becomes of the brilliant Stuart Dallas and Luke Ayling and these people who he's he's crafted into his team and built them around. If a new manager comes in and decides he doesn't want them anymore and we're throwing it all out again, it, it would feel like there was danger again. Whereas with Bielsa, it just feels like he is absolutely in charge of of pretty much everything at Leeds. He's got the complete respect and I guess a, a level of fear from the board as well that, that they just have to let him do what he wants. And so far, he's he's barely put a foot wrong. So 
he can stay for as long as as he <laughs> he can sign the longest contract possible. I think also credit to Bielsa actually in the world of football management because a lot of managers, if you look at someone like Mourinho, I don't think he would look at signing a one year deal, for example, because he would be thinking, well, if I'm sacked, I want to be paid off for three years. Or some, a lot, it's not typical mm. within football management to, that managers actually do last very long, but they want a long deal for the financial security. Bielsa seems to be doing this pretty much for his own reasons and not financial, which is quite refreshing. Well, immediately following those first comments were words to that effect. And he is the opposite end of the spectrum with regards to looking for a compensation deal because he's sort of saying to the club, and I don't is he being cute here a little bit, Phil? I'll get your uh, your thoughts on that after we've played the clip. But say that, look, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen between now and the end of the season. It might all go completely belly up. So in which case the club might not want to keep me as unlikely as that probably is. But have a listen. Uh, the second thing is that the, the decision to work in a club um, for another year is so important that you must have a, a, a clear uh, a security. And when you have a third of the season left to play, perhaps in this period, there will be um, things that will happen that, that can alter the, the judgment that is um, useful to have in mind. That's my reasoning. So I go to what you asked me. If the club needs an answer before the end of the season, I will respond before the end of the season. But if this happens, I, I will take the time the time to tell them that they they should consider what happens in the in the last part of the season. And in this case, it is possible that they could say to me, "Okay, we'll wait till the end of the season," or they may say to me, "No, we need to resolve this before yeah. the end of the season." If they need a response prior to the end of the season, then I will give one. Yeah, just quickly to go back to something Michael said about the summer. To be fair to the club, that that is one reason why it would suit them better to have this sorted out earlier because there's no doubt at all that if Bielsa was to go mid-May, the end of May, it does create huge amounts of upheaval and, and it's not that Leeds wouldn't have an idea of where they would go and, and what they would do. But given that that's not what they want to... It was different with Heckenbottom. You know, that was what they wanted to do that summer was to replace him. They were kind of decided on that by mid-April, early May. Even when Heckenbottom went to Myanmar with the squad, you know, that was the point at which they were starting to court Bielsa, um, unbeknownst to any of us initially. But they were set on having a new manager. And because of that, it, it was a it was a positive thing for them and, and it was something to, to throw themselves at. I think this time around, it, it would be a big disappointment. So, so clearly, it would suit them better um, if it was decided at some distance in advance. I mean, Bielsa saying that he's not been offered an extension. I think even if he's not got one in, in paper form, there's no doubt at all that the club would, would begin discussing that with him tomorrow if, if he was willing. But when we asked him and said, you know, what if they did come to you and say we need an earlier answer? He said, you know, I, I would tell them, I think you should wait until the end of the season just in case something happens. I mean, the, the idea that anything that goes on between now and May in a footballing sense, I mean, you never know with politics in, at, at a football club, but the idea that anything in a football sense could dissuade Leeds from wanting to keep him on for a fourth year is is ridiculous, really. I mean, it's hard to hard to really fathom what on earth that could mean or or, or what could develop in, in this period of 10 to 12 weeks that would give people in the boardroom any doubt at all. And I, to an extent, I feel as if he's kind of steering the club a little bit here. I, I, he, you know, it, it, he was very humble in what he was saying and, and he was very modest and, and everything else. But I think there's also an element of him making sure that this is done on his terms, which I think is right. And I think he's wholly entitled to to do that, given the way it's given the way it's gone. I, I think what Leeds would very much like to avoid, um, like last summer, is getting into a situation where they're 48 hours away from the first league game away at Liverpool 
and they still haven't got him signed, you know, to a contract extension. He still had a rolling deal and the Premier League had said that it would be fine for him to manage on the touchline at Anfield under the terms of that rolling deal. But externally, it doesn't look great. You know, you've got a head coach who seems to be resisting the offer, even though that wasn't how it was. You know, it was just the technicalities of it and it was the, the kind of delay or the, the slowness in English to Spanish, Spanish to English, the contract back and forward. It, it was a kind of technical matter rather than, you know, actual actual arguments or disagreements over brass tacks. They were both sides were, were committed and, and I think it was always going to happen. But clubs don't really like uncertainty. Premier League clubs like to have good assets, the more priceless assets that they have. They like to have them on long contracts. They like to have them tied down. They like to have that that certainty. And, you know, whereas you've got Rafinha on a, a long, long deal or, a, you know, as long a deal as realistically you could have given him, you've got Bielsa on a short one. But this is how it's always been with Bielsa. And, and we know that this is how it is with Bielsa. And I don't, you know, none of the signals are suggesting that it needs to be a problem. I just think it it needs to, to run its course and, and it needs to take the, the natural flow, which from Bielsa's point of view would be toxic. And, and potentially, but well, hopefully, an extension when the season finishes. I mean, the thought of being without him now. <laughs> I mean, I sound like a lovelorn teenager, but it's awful because he's brought so much and he's brought so much progress to the club that it upsets me just thinking about the day that he leaves. And there will be a day that comes, sorry to spoil this for everybody, there will be a day that comes, but I hope we just reach a natural end point. But it doesn't, it doesn't to me, it doesn't feel like we're we're close to that yet because it feels to me like the structure of the club is kind of, solidifying and stabilising around him if you know what I mean like the finances aren't precarious because we're not in the championship anymore we've got the 49ers money and we've got this clear roadmap for development and improving the ground it, it feels like the club is growing and getting stronger around him I'm told as well that he's got a pretty clear idea of what he wants to do in the summer of the numbers that that would go the numbers that would come in and it's as possible we'll see up to to five signings and we've spoken before about um, Romain Perraud the left back at, at Stade Brest in France who they, they like a lot and that'll be one position I'm, I'm certain they'll address and you know still no sign of an extension for Alioski and I think more and more you wonder whether he might be one of the ones who, who moves out but you know people like Hernandez uh, potentially Roberts I mean there'll be a question about Berardi as well because this um, deal that he's been on during his, his recovery from the ACL is, is up in the summer Again, you, you, you guys like Casilla. And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, Costa's form has not been great recently. And, and those are the circumstances in which you do risk getting left behind when you've got players like Rafinha who are really, really shining. But, to, you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think Bielsa's coaches know what he's going to do. You know, I don't think he I don't think he discusses this with many people. You know, he, he doesn't he, he doesn't get into, you know, his, his kind of inner thoughts about what he thinks should happen or, or what he expects to happen. It will be the case, I think, that come the end of the season, phone calls will happen, discussions will begin. And I would expect that, that it would get sorted out. It just seems to suit everybody, this partnership at the moment. And, and you're right, one day... It will end, and you know, as, as daft as it seems to be saying this, one day it might be that people want it to end. You know that that kind of is how football tends to go. Eventually, nothing does last forever. Nothing's perfect, and and nothing's brilliant forever. You're seeing it a little bit with Hernandez. You know the the, the kind of slow creep of him towards the end of his Leeds career, and I, I suspect that while people will be very sorry to see him go in the summer, assuming he does go in the summer. 
I think a lot of people will probably take the view that actually Leeds are, are kind of going in a slightly different direction or, or have, have left him behind to an extent. And that's just the natural run of things. You know, that is the way it goes. And, and it might not always be brilliant for Bielsa. It might, you know, he might hit a patch where it becomes really difficult or where he, he loses control. But this season has been so good and so impressive and it's been so well managed by him in the main that it would be absolutely nonsensical to, to change head coach if he was willing to stay. That figure of five, Phil, I mean, you mentioned going into last summer, they were looking at four to five signings and we got four big ones. You seem fairly certain around that number. I mean, obviously can't ask you to give up your sources or we don't want to engage too much in Tittle Tattle, but um, can you explain why you think they're going to get up to five? Well, I think they will address the midfield. I've I've heard it said a, a couple of times now that, that they will look and see if they can do anything in the Phillips position, you know, whether they can find somebody young, um, somebody who would be happy to be almost, you know, kind of up and coming players. So that you, you, I mean, essentially with Phillips there, there's no point trying to sign an elite central defender, uh, central midfielder in a defensive role because when Phillips is fit, they're not going to play. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult sell that. But I, I do think it's been apparent more and more this season that you've seen the pressure that's on Matthias Cleek. I mean, he's been playing with a hip injury the last few games. He, he came off at half-time against Arsenal. He, he came off injured um, again against Southampton in midweek. He might be OK for the weekend, but a lot of strain on him and, and a lot of pressure on him. And, I, and that, you know, that I think is an area where they're going to try and, and bulk things up as well. And it might be that if Berardi goes, they feel that they, they need a little bit more um, defensive cover, as I say, I, I think they will they will certainly go for a, a left back, and that will become even more important if Alioski does go. And given you know when they, they started speaking to Alioski about uh, a new contract, it's it's hard to say really how that's going to work out. But you've got feeling at the moment is that it, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere particularly quickly. And you know, given that his deal is is almost up now, it's only natural and, and only right that. that I would imagine his his agency are looking at what else is out there and, and considering his options because he's probably at the move where uh, probably at the age sorry where this next move for him is is going to be his last big one or or his last substantial one. Um, so yeah, in, interesting summer and and I think what what I'll find most interesting about it is the fact that they will be crossing over from ultra devotion to that championship squad with a couple of additions to it, you know, Rafinha, Rodrigo, Koch and, and Llorente, to more of a squad which starts to look like the kind of core of the championship team, but with different players and better players filtered around them. Do we sign a goalkeeper, do you think? And if so, do they signed as a first-choice goalkeeper or as a reserve? It would depend on Casilla going. And the one of the problems with Casilla, aside from the fact that Bielsa likes him and, and wants to keep him, is that he's on a, a big wage and there don't seem to be too many takers, his, his contract's lengthy as well. I think I'm right in saying it runs to 2023. Uh, so it's not it's not as if that's an easy one to settle or a, an easy one to, to get out of. I think if they were to sign another keeper, they would want somebody who could compete with, with Melier without a doubt. But I don't get any sense that Melier is any less first choice now than he was at the start of the season. Probably quite the opposite. I know they've been the odd mistake. There'd be mistakes here and there. Um, and and a couple of them um, fairly costly, but I think in the main for a you know a twenty year old and and you know the the youngest keeper across Europe to be playing this regularly in a in a top five league, he's done well. He really has done well, and and I think you'd be wise to commit to him, and you'd be wise to to stick with him, you know, for as long as was sensible, because given his age, he you know he has the potential to go on and and be to be a really top-class keeper. Definite areas of his game that need to improve. I think aerially, I always feel that Casilla is stronger than than 
um, Millie. I, I don't. I, I I always feel that that Casillas is more comfortable under the high balls than than Millie is. But I think Millie is all round game. It's it's there in the main. Um, and as I say, given how many years he should have ahead of him, th- there is the potential to carve out something pretty special there. Let's go back to Monday's presser and return to the theme of Bielsa and the fact that it does seem to be all heading in the right direction. It's all the stuff that he wants. Um, and he's spoken very, very fondly of the job at Leeds and all the things that have played into his potential decision to stay. I don't imagine for my um, professional future nothing better than the, what Leeds represent uh, as a job, given uh, how the club is and the principles that they have due to the public, the stadium, the, the Premier League, the fans, um, due to the project that the, the club is, is, is undertaking, due to the knowledge I have of the club and, and, and the people here, there's a lot of um, knowledge that I've accumulated for integrated with the city and also this region in England <coughs> and also that what surrounds it, uh, Yorkshire. And, and I also value a lot of the, the people that are surround me and, and, and work for the club. A sign there maybe then, Phil, that um, he's happy with Victor Orta and the work that he's doing. Yeah, there's a good, strong relationship there and, and there has been from the start. And I think Orta's job in managing Bielsa and, and keeping him sweet is probably underestimated. It's not particularly easy, but they, they do seem to have a, a really decent understanding. Um, and, and I think it's helped to create a, an environment and the, the model it leads in, in general has given Bielsa what he needs and, and, and what he wants. I think it takes away some of the responsibility for things that Bielsa doesn't want to deal with, so, you know, contractual extensions and so on. That, that there is a lot that the author takes on and, and a lot that author picks up. But they've been when it comes to recruitment, they've been able to get on the same page. They've been able to to find players that Bielsa likes and, and Bielsa wants. And there's no doubt at all that it, it is what better for Bielsa here than it has at any club. Um, in Europe. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He had a fantastic first season at Athletic Bilbao, but then obviously within 12 months was was gone. At, at Marseille, it was over pretty quickly. At Lille and Lazio, it was over very, very quickly. This just seems like a really fertile ground for him, fertile ground and that, that he can he can really develop and he can cultivate and, and where he's free to do what he likes. You know, he, it, his autonomy and his authority has been almost absolute from the start. And, and everybody seems willing to accept that. You know, I I always feel with Bielsa that there are probably a huge number of clubs out there that despite his ability and despite his, his coaching talent, probably wouldn't employ him because they wouldn't be sure that they could deal with him. Um, and I think equally, there are a lot of clubs out there that Bielsa probably wouldn't be keen on because they couldn't give him what it is that he needs. They couldn't give him the kind of exact spec that he wants in order to, to kind of thrive as as a coach. And, and I would say, and you know, only he could, say this for sure I can't really speak for him but I'd be surprised if any club has satisfied him as much since he was back at Newell's Old Boys in, in the 1990s and, and given that you're talking 30 years ago it's impossible to compare the two jobs you know the infrastructure is totally different these days the way football operates the way players look after themselves your analytics your science everything else it's, it's, it's almost like a completely different sport in the way that it's run but I think, you know, bookending his career like that, they've been the best days of his life. And and I, I suspect that he, that deep down he would be worried about leaving this behind because it's surely too good to let go of. How much have the club changed in terms of the way they handle the managers? Because I, I get the impression that if Heckingbottom wanted sockets moving at the training ground, <laughs> he might have been told to just live with it by an extension cable or something. Whereas it seems like the club has had to, to keep Bielsa. They have had to do all this stuff and maybe the next manager won't get quite so much power. I think that's a good observation. 
the, with Christensen, for example, he wanted very little in the way of input into transfers. It was a case of the players were signed and, you know, he did oversight of what they were doing and, and they would discuss the positions that they needed to fill. But but really, he would he would take whoever came in. When, when Heckenbottom was appointed, he made two additions to the coaching staff at Leeds. They also made eight, you know, and they also came in 2018. There were eight additions and, and the amount of money involved and, and the amount of recruitment involved just in the back room alone told you really that you'd shifted from a point where managers were fitting into the framework of a club to a stage where the club was fitting around the framework of a manager. And I think that had to be done with BLC. It would have been a huge mistake to have employed him and not to have gone to the lengths that he was asking them to. I mean, always, there were always going to have to be limits and there was always going to be only so much money Leeds could spend because they were in the championship and, you know, there, there are upper limits and there are restrictions on losses and everything else through FFP. But you have to go the whole hog with Bielsa. And I think as demanding as he can be, and, you know, there are times when I know that the club feel as if they're not necessarily getting or sensing the gratitude from them, from him, that they'd expect given some of, of what they do. But that's just his personality and that's just how, how he is. I, I think that if you asked him, and I mean, he does say this, you know, he would struggle to, to give you any meaningful list of things that he wanted from Leeds that, that haven't been delivered. The changes to the training ground have been done and, and it's not a vastly different site, but there are noticeable differences. And you've got facilities there now that weren't there when, when he came in. The, the recruitment has always given him what he's looking for in the positions that, that he wanted to fill. And, and it's not that all the signings have worked, but in the main, there's been no friction there. There's been very very few major arguments or fallouts that it, I don't think Bielsa has ever felt that he hasn't been properly backed. And the, the important thing with him was always the, the guarantee that if he felt that he was being stitched up or if he felt like Leeds weren't pushing the boat out in the transfer market or if he felt that he was being promised things that weren't being delivered and that he was being undermined, he'd have said so, you know, and he would probably have resigned. And I think having gone through years where people used to accuse Grayson or others of, of not saying what needed to be said about the hierarchy of perhaps being yes men, whether that was a fair perception or, or not. You're in a position now where you know that if Bielsa was frustrated, he would tell you, you know, he, he would say so. He would probably resign, go issue a statement that would, you know, would speak his, his mind. But you don't get much of that. You don't get any of that, really. He, he just does seem wholly content with the job that he's in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. This season seems to be racing away from us. Match 26 of the season at the weekend against Aston Villa, currently sitting in eighth, and we will overtake them, albeit temporarily probably, um, if we win, because they've got a couple of games in hand. But another winnable game, this one, yeah? Well, it is on the basis of the first game between 
the clubs. I mean, I'm I'm gonna annoy you here because you hate it when I say to be fair to people like Dean Smith and others, but they've had a good season, Villa, and I, and I do feel like Leeds they they got the recruitment pretty much bang on in the summer. I think where they are at the moment, eighth is as good as you would have expected from from them, given how last season went and given that they're only two years into this. Uh, but the thing that really interested me in the first game was that it was tight and it was close. I mean, I'd say tight. It, it was actually an entertaining game um, at 0-0, but it was, you know, it was very even. There wasn't a, a whole lot in it until Leeds scored, until Bamford got the first goal of his hat-trick, at which point I felt that Villa's heads and shoulders really went down. I, I wouldn't. I don't know whether it would be fair to say, like we were talking about Southampton earlier, they they threw the towel in, but there was nothing coming back. And it was that famous night where, ninety four minutes in, Leeds had a seven on four on the edge of Villa's box, even though they were three 0 up. And and I was sitting watching Bielsa, who was just barking at them incessantly, you know, demanding basically that they played on and played on right to the final whistle, even though that had, had been won about fifteen minutes earlier. So. It gives Smith a lot to think about, actually. I think he'll, he'll have spent quite a bit of time analysing that and working out what went wrong, what what he could have done differently, what it was that, that Bielsa was able to do and to turn in what Bielsa considers to be Leeds' best performance of the season. And I, don't, I wouldn't say he's far wrong with that at all. It was probably the most convincing win. But it was a night where Leeds had a lot of space in the middle of the pitch. They Once strike went off and Cleek came on, Villa didn't really press um, in the way that other clubs do. They they didn't they weren't really aggressive with Cleek in, in that number four role. And it just seemed that there were constant opportunities for Rodrigo to drop deep and um, for, for Cleek to, to play out, for them to kind of spread the ball about on halfway and to use the wings to attack down the flanks and, and open up more gaps and, and more room. Um, and it was Bamford's night, obviously, top class finishing from him, particularly the, the two goals and first leads hat trick for, for nigh on twenty years. So, yeah, I mean, winnable game, absolutely. And we've had a little further update in the pre-Villa press conference that has happened on Thursday, was it today, as we are recording. Um, we know that we've got no Rodrigo and no Calvin for this one. Uh, Click is doing okay, said Bielsa, but he's not yet sure if he's going to make it. And the other injury that was kind of uh, tidied up was that Cox should be back in action early March, first week of March, he said. Yes, so you would expect that Koch will be back before the end of the season or fully match fit before the end of the season, which was always the projection. They said it would be three months or so after his surgery um, in December and, and it looks like it will be three months almost exactly. And No, Rodrigo still, um, he, he's got a groin problem. Um, a bit more info on Calvin Phillips. He also was saying that they're just wary of rushing him at the moment. There, there was the... The, the possibility that initially that he wasn't going to miss any games, Bielsa was talking straight after the point where he was injured, the, of the chances of Phillips actually being back without missing a match. But it hasn't been that way and, and it's ticked on a little bit now. He's, he's missed a few. Um, and Bielsa was saying because of where the injury is in his calf, little tear, they're just worried about the possibility of playing him too early and, and of it worsening and, and him being out for for a little while. So he won't feature a game, which will mean that they'll, they'll need to improvise slightly um, in, in midfield. But... You remember that he missed the game down at Villa Park. You know, that was strike to begin with and he was substituted early because he'd, he'd got a, a yellow card in, in the first 20 minutes and Bielsa was worried about him getting a second. And then Cleek played um, the, the final 70 minutes and was very, very good that night. He coped far better in that role than he did, um, for example, subsequently against Leicester. So I don't think, um, again, Bielsa will deviate much from the team he played against Southampton. I think the really interesting call with this one will be whether... Hilda Costa starts on the basis of his second half on Tuesday. And not only that, on the basis that 
Harrison was quiet in that game and, and also pretty ineffective down at Wolves as well. That, to me, would seem to be the, the one area where there's a, a decision to be made. But in the main, I think this will be a lineup that's pretty easy to guess. You were talking before, Phil, actually, about the needle, the slight needle that's developed towards Villa. I don't think it's necessarily that Dean Smith has done anything wrong. He's just got a, he's got a bit of a whingy face. Is that and John Terry's alongside him as well? That's that's hard to love. I mean, the the stuff that happened to Ellen Road with the letting them score a goal and everything. I don't think he came off particularly well from that. In that the entitlement was there from him, and the fact that Villa have since done similar things where things have gone in their favour with the players down injured, and they had obviously the goal at Sheffield United that that kept them up essentially. And I don't know. It feels to me a bit like it, they've not they don't acknowledge their the things that go in their favour, whereas they do moan a fair bit about the things that go against them. But is that different to anyone? I don't know if it is, but we, we don't have to uh, justify ourselves, do we? We can just hate on other clubs and other fans. But in, I think as well, there's there's other stuff around it. Like, yeah, we've been on similar trajectories over the last few years. They obviously went up the season when we, we blew it against Derby. And let you say, there was all that hoo-ha at Ellen Road. So it feels like, because we've been travelling almost twin paths, haven't we, I guess? I think so. And I think Villa are one of those teams that I actually, truth be told, I quite like them being in the uh, Premier yeah, League. I yeah. consider them to be a proper Premier League team. Whereas when we were coming up with West Brom and Fulham. I sort of see those as more borderline, whereas Villa Villa should be in the middle of the Premier League. It is the right spot for them. And oh, I mean, it's good to have rivalry, isn't it? It gives you a bit of something to well, get like, your teeth into. It's like Grealish, isn't it? I'm, I'm glad he's not going to be available, probably, based on what we've uh, what we've seen so far. But, you know, equally, it's nice to have a hate figure, isn't it, when you, to, to bombard the telly. I mean, what, what do you make of this, um, this Grealish thing? And, and I liked Bielsa's comments today saying that he'd prefer... Grealish to be available, Phil, um, to act as a stimulus for his team. Yeah, which is not what you expect to hear. Um, and and with anybody else, you would come away thinking, there's no way he actually means that. But I think he prefers the challenge of seeing his players having to beat um, an opposition lineup at, at full strength. I think Bielsa always t- kind of goes back time and again to entertainment value as well and, and the idea that the stronger the teams on the pitch, the, the better the game should be and, and the more entertaining it will be for the people who who are watching. Um, I mean, there definitely is a little bit of niggle between Leeds and Villa. It was a, a little bit heated, actually, at the, the game in 2018, the, the late roof winner down at Villa Park. I think um, Victor Orta was fairly vocal <laughs> in the director's box that day, um, which ruffled a, ruffled a few feathers. And then, obviously, we had the, the walking goal and, and everything else. I mean, what was it, you know, quite funny in, in October was that if there was any niggle and if there was any bad blood, it, it was kind of blown out the water on the night by the fact that Leeds won so comprehensively. I mean, Dean Smith at the end said, we almost got away with one there. You know, losing 3-0, given the way we played in the second half, is by no means a good result, but it could have been considerably worse. I think he felt that they were they were at risk of a, a bit of a hiding in that game. But that didn't really derail them particularly. They, they've had a good season and, and they've been as consistent, if not slightly more so, than Leeds. And I think they'll be they'll be pretty confident um, about this. But I think if you know if both managers look back to that that previous meeting between them, there's every reason for for Bielsa to be confident himself. How do we fancy this one's going to go? Because we've got our tails up at the minute. I think um, there's no reason why we shouldn't win this one. Like you say, the pressure's off. Things feel pretty happy at the minute. Or is this when Leeds get caught out? I think Grealish being out is a big bonus for us, in truth. Because again, as as much as we maybe don't like to acknowledge. The fact that he is good, he is by far the best player, and whenever I've seen them performing well, he's been absolutely at the centre of it. So if he if he isn't playing, I think we've got a reasonable chance of winning this. The important thing against Villa, a little bit like Southampton on Tuesday, is not to let them get their noses in front and and not to let them 
capitalising the periods when they are on top. There were points in the first half where Southampton should have scored and the Vestergaard had in particular and, and obviously they, they almost mugged a penalty out of Andre Mariner as well and, and I think if, if they had got ahead you'd have been looking at a very different game and, and a, a very different night. I don't think they would necessarily have pressed quite as high or as aggressively had they had a goal in the bank. You saw that in October with Villa that you know they were in the game, they were in the game, and then they conceded, and suddenly the, the confidence just drained a bit. And it was it was effectively because they hadn't been able to make any inroads, and suddenly they were they were on the back foot. So I think that's the way Leeds will want the game to go: get in front, dominate, and ask questions of Villa, which hopefully they they won't be able to answer. But I I think scoreline wise, I think it'll be tighter this time round. I, I know that Bielsa last time felt that Villa actually played pretty well for a lot of that game, um, up until the point where, where Leeds really took it by the throat. Um, so I, I think it'll be tighter. I, I think it'll be closer, but I think good chance of a home win. It's perhaps the warning sign about that first game is that it was it came as a surprise that it felt so easy and it was such a comfortable win. Do we need to be wary of that a little bit? No, because I, I don't feel that there's a, an awful lot of complacency in this Leeds team at all, even at Arsenal and 4-0 down. I don't think they were looking complacent. They just didn't catch flight at all down there. It, it was strange that the fuse was never lit um, or, or was caught fire so late in the game that you were trying to fight back from 4-0, which was, was never going to happen realistically. I think the bottom line is that Villa could come here, play well and win the game. You know, they, they are that good and, and they do have decent players from front to back. But what you'd hope for is is that Watkins... I mean, I watched Watkins quite closely during that game in, in October because obviously there'd, there'd been the, the interest from Leeds in him and, and the, the real possibility that had Leeds not been able to do Rodrigo, they, they would have gone for Watkins down at Brentford instead. And in the end, Villa did that and paid £28 million for him. I mean, he was a he was a shadow in the final 20 minutes of that game. There was nothing coming from him at all. And that was mainly because Villa had completely lost the, the channels of communication to him. They weren't able to get him any decent ball. They weren't able to, to lay him much in the way of, of decent chances. And it was, it was great, you know, from a Leeds perspective to see him so peripheral. And again, those are the players that you've got to take out the game. Grealish, the same happened to him, you know, whether he plays or not. If he does, try and isolate him, try and subdue him, try and pour a bit of water on him and hopefully take him out of the contest because that's pretty much what happened on Tuesday. You, in the first half, there'd been threats and there'd been issues and there'd been problems and there'd been pressure coming from Southampton. But even when they brought on Ings and Minamino, there, there, were, there were some moments, there were some points in the game where things could happen for Southampton. They might have nicked a goal back or, or whatever else. But you felt that no matter how many times Southampton scored, you know, after half time, Leeds were, were looking like they'd comfortably outscored them by two or three goals. Um, so again, I think that's that'll be absolutely crucial is, is making sure that Villa's best players don't shine. Score predictions then and a one to watch if we can, please. Uh, I'm going to go for a 2-0 Leeds win and one to watch is what Bielsa does um, on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, depending on how he decides to set up Rafinha um, and, and where he decides to play him. Is it going to be Harrison? Is it going to be Costa? I have to say, from the evidence of Tuesday, I'd be very tempted to go with Costa. I'm going to actually go for two all with some penalties. <laughs> I feel like there's not been any controversy for a while. And Lord only knows you can't be too optimistic forever, can you? A draw's fine. I mean, it's fair to say, I think, at this point in the season that both clubs would be absolutely delighted with being stuck in mid-table because I think uh, after the season, end of the last season that Villa had and with it being our first time, it is kind of a, it's a free hit for both teams mm. to an extent, isn't it? It's Yeah, we haven't drawn for ages, have we, either? It's boring drawing. Let's yeah. not bother. No, fair point. Let's not. Let's beat them. Why not? I mean, to be fair, actually, you look at the games that are coming up with West Ham away and Chelsea at home, where points are going to be a little bit harder to come by. Then why not go into this one with the attitude that let's pick up another three and get that get that season done and dusted? 
I'll t- tell you something else to look out for as well. People might have noticed um, the, the comments from Hassan Huttle after the game on Tuesday about tactical fouling. He was saying that Leeds were very good at it and it was a, a, a tactic they used to sort of break up the game in the periods where Southampton were trying to break. And we asked Bielsa about it today and Bielsa said, no, I, I honestly don't think that was, was the case. So I decided to go back on Scout and I watched through the fouls on, on Tuesday night. And I think it's fair to say that there were occasions, probably three or four, where you had scenarios where Southampton players were either giving Leeds the slip slightly or, or going past them and and there was the tendency to stick a, a foot in. I don't think on the evidence it looked like a glaring or obvious ploy. You know, it didn't look to me like it was an endemic ploy that had kind of been instructed um, at the start and that, that Leeds were setting out to, to do necessarily deliberately or, or as part of a part of a wider tactical plan. But I guess something to look for again against Villa because Villa will try to get the run on Leeds. Villa will try to exploit gaps. To my mind, tactical fouling is pretty cute, to be honest. I think it's um, nice part of the game these days and I, I think you, you're sensible to do it if it if it helps you out. But Bielsa doesn't think that Leeds do it. Maybe we'll get a bit more evidence one way or the other um, on Saturday. I think it's something we've actually lacked from our game at times during this season. We've probably been a little bit too fair. So if we have been doing a bit of tactical fouling, then good, I'm all for it. Don't want to see Grealish diving around, though. That kind of cheating absolutely offends my sensibilities. However, <laughs> if we do it and we do it on the sly, fine. Yeah, I agree. If, if, as long as it's happening to other people, that's all right. <laughs> that, that's, that is Premier League football in a nutshell. If it's not affecting us, all good. <laughs> we never even got onto Wolves and their disgusting cheating, did we? But never mind. Yeah, no, it's not worth it. Ancient history now. Ancient history, right. If you want to get up to date with all Phil's writing, get onto The Athletic. Uh, there is the discount in place at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Sign up there at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next time. The Phil Hay Show.